can be seated. I Surrender All could very much be the anthem of the Apostle Paul, who we've been looking at, who wrote the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians 4 this morning, uh, kind of the first half of that. You're welcome to turn your Bibles there if you're going to follow along with us. Uh, Verses will be on the screen as well. If you've read epistles or letters in the Bible, you'll see that at the beginning and at the end, you can really feel and are reminded that it's a letter. You'll see what, what I think of as a bit of a roll call. A very specific people get called out. Um, and so we're going to peek at that before looking at a, a couple very notable declarations from Paul here. Now, I, it can be fun to name people and to call people out for their faithfulness or for their good works. And this is sometimes something that we do in worship. I did this last week in identifying the volunteers who helped with this month's third Friday food distribution. I get joy out of noting who's teaching in the children's rooms downstairs, and uh, I like to give thanks to our deacons, like when they prepare and help serve communion. You know, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we should let our good deeds shine before others, that they might see them and, and glorify God. So that's why something that, that I really enjoy doing is identifying and noting when I see people letting their light shine before others in a way that glorifies God. And it's clear that this is something that's important to Paul as well. We see people getting called out in Philippians. Uh, Very notably here uh, in the fourth chapter, we see Paul giving attention to a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus seems to be the one who brought the letter from the church in Philippi to Paul in prison. We also see some people getting called out for reasons that aren't good. So let's look at the beginning of chapter 4 and see what we have with that. We're going to look at uh, just these first three verses at first. Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudoia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the case of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of Christ. That's Philippians 4, 1 through 3. We don't know the full details, but just looking at the middle there with Eudoia and Syntyche, it appears there's some conflict afoot, which Paul addresses head on as he's closing the letter with this appeal for them to be unified. Now, I don't think it would go very well if I took the other side of the coin and highlighted conflict between two people from the pulpit during highlights. That would not go over well, but Paul's decision to do so here seems to be out of his deep concern for these two women who have been his partners in ministry and clearly leaders in the church in Philippi. Uh, This is one of those countless examples in the Bible where I see the verse and think, I wish I knew more. And I think one day we'll learn more. So we do see Paul calling out uh, immensely positive uh, individuals as he closes as well. Epaphroditus, who I mentioned earlier, he gets a lot of attention in Philippians 2, and he gets a lot of attention in the second half of Philippians 4. 
And I encourage you to look a little more closely at that if you have time later in the week, because uh, we don't have time to go into the full detail about him. But Epaphroditus, like I mentioned, he's the delegate that the Philippian church sends from Philippi to where Paul is in prison. And he sends his well wishes. He comes to, to bring their love. And we see at the end of chapter 4, Epaphroditus brings money as well. So he brings himself to serve and minister and care. And he also has a bag of money with him. Now, it, it can be taboo to talk about money. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do this whole sermon. Um, now, this is just part of what he's talking about here. It can be taboo to talk about money in church, but Paul is clearly with us on that. In the second half of chapter 4, he has very transparent discomfort about receiving money. I, I encourage you to look at that more later. But the reality is that we're, we're reminded in this chapter is that in ministry, sometimes sending money is the best way to support someone. Paul needed money while he was in jail. Great that Epaphroditus came to give him love. Great that Epaphroditus came to care for him. But Paul needed that money. Roman prisons were much different from our facilities of incarceration today. Rather than having individual cells that prisoners lived in, there were open, common areas where they were chained. You can get a picture of, of what that would look like there. Imagine Paul alongside dozens of others in an open, common area. Another big difference is there wasn't mealtime. A bell didn't ring for everyone to go get their prepared food. Prisoners depended on friends and family for that. So this money that Paul is uncomfortable about receiving, this money that Epaphroditus brings, helped have his practical needs met while he was in prison. And this support that he received, it helped him focus and invest on his mission and this writing that we see him doing that has encouraged churches from the first century in Philippi all the way through to today. So when we see names and when we see these little asides at the beginning and ends of letters, there's often, uh, I think, a really neat amount of, of context that goes along with them. So Epaphroditus, for my money, is one of the uh, underrated secret agents in Scripture uh, who traveled. Imagine him keeping that money safe and concealed as well to support the ministry of Paul and to equip him to really run the race to the finish line. So let's look more closely at this encouragement and guidance that we see Paul offering. We're going to pick up in verse 4 and go through verse 7 here. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 4 through 7. And in it, we see a very direct call to rejoice. Those first verses, first lines of verse 4 might sound familiar to you. In this direct call, we're seeing to rejoice, to be gentle, to not be anxious, and to pray to God. And what we see in verse 7, it says that in doing this, God's peace will watch guard over our lives. God will stand guard 
over our lives. It feels really, really good to know that someone is on guard. I walk through our neighborhood all the time, and we've, we've started to read the, the numbers on all the mailboxes and point to different signs when I walk with the kids. And we've just recently noticed security system signs. So it's like, uh, almost like trading cards we collect on our walk, because there's ADT, there's Simply Safe, there's uh, a whole laundry list of security systems, because it feels good to know that someone is on guard. This is a bit of what Paul is communicating here. We see here in verse 7 that verb, to guard, it's, it's the future active indicative. This is a, a promise that God will be on guard in the future, and that that act of guarding that's going to happen in the future is something that's going to continue and something that's going to be ongoing. We need to let this reality sink in for us. This reality that God is on guard for us 24-7, whether we're acknowledging that or not. This peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. As I've been stewing on this ever-present standing guard over the past week in particular, it's really hard for me to not picture the guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier just a, a handful of miles that way. Has anyone here been there for the changing of the guards? A, a lot of people. If you're like me, you might have been there when you had out-of-town visitors who wanted to see it. That's a, a popular place to take people, and it, it really is a, a spectacular ceremony. This Tomb of the Unknown Soldier has been guarded uh, 24-7 since the 1930s. And it began really a decade before that. You can see the beautiful view there, right? If you've been there, you can, can see quite a ways. In the 20s, that became the most popular picnic spot at the cemetery. So rather than this being a, a place of remembrance and reverence, uh, it turned into the place to go to take your lunch. So. Uh, they started putting someone to stand guard over there during opening hours, and then it morphed into what we see and we know today with someone, uh, with no one resting from guarding it 24-7, rain, snow, sleet. It's this type of guarding that we see Paul talking about in Philippians 4-7. It's a type of guarding that, that never rests. God guards our hearts and our minds present and future, and God is never, never off-duty. Thankfully, we can rest in the reality that that's how God operates, because I think for a lot of us, it can be difficult to always keep our minds on God, or to always be reminded of this reality that God is standing guard over us with his peace. Rather than picturing God like the guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier, I think a lot of us might, whether we do it actively or not, think of God more like a special security detail that we could call upon when we're needed and employ into action when the moment requires it. But we're reminded here, as Philippians close, that God is always standing guard for us and over us. And it shouldn't be lost on us that Paul who, as we've talked about, is in prison, 
is surrounded by guards as he uses this metaphor that had become all too familiar to him to talk about the way in which God watches over us. Paul had less than ideal circumstances in his reality, and he redeemed those as a teaching metaphor for us to understand the very active ways in which God is present in our lives. And you might notice a detail from the verse there. It's the peace of God that verse 7 guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we're responsive to that call in verses 4, 5, and 6, we will know that peace. Remember, there was the call to rejoice, the call to be gentle, the call to not be anxious, the call to pray to God. And in that process, it's this peace of God which transcends all understanding, actively guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So what do we mean when we see that this surpasses all understanding? It's an interesting use of language here, and the fact that the peace surpasses all understanding doesn't mean that it's something that's not attainable. That doesn't mean that it's theoretical and out in the distance. To say it transcends doesn't mean we can't grasp it or feel it. This is a peace that is real and a peace that we know. To say it, it transcends all understanding simply means that it's not something that we can create. It's not something that we can replicate or supplement with something else if we're looking for true peace in our lives. This peace will keep watch over us 24-7. And the great thing about it that we're going to see Paul lean into is it leads to a very special and rare attribute that everyone is after today, whether they are actively or passively, and that's the attribute of contentment. Paul closes talking about contentment in a really powerful way. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 10 uh, for our last segment from Scripture, 10 to 13 here. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I said Paul concludes Philippians with a bang, and I really think that's what he's getting at here. He says he's figured it out. He says directly, I have learned the secret. Paul has learned the secret of being content in every situation. This is a man who has been in tons of situations, and he's sharing with the church, he's sharing with us as he wraps up, I've learned the secret. Strength and satisfaction grounded in Jesus. We've seen this throughout our whole study this month. Paul receives strength in resting in the promise of God and, and wearing him and cloaking himself with the humility of Christ. This strength and satisfaction that's grounded in Jesus, that's the secret to what's keeping Paul going. Not just going, not just stumbling to the finish line, but sprinting, ministering to the guards while he's in prison, 
writing these letters that we're reading today and gleaning insights from, this is so much more than, than blind optimism from Paul. He is living proof that he's figured out the secret, that it's real, and that he's applying it in his life. I think it's great that, that he ends with a bang, and he's encouraging those who are hearing from him. They, might, they certainly are worried about him. And instead of hearing a list of, of ailments or struggles, which certainly were a reality, he ends with a bang, saying, I've figured out this contentment thing. So I, I love to imagine how the church in Philippi received and responded to this. It's something that I hope we receive and acknowledge and actually do respond to. In last week's sermon, if you were here, or if you weren't here, I, I mentioned a semester in divinity school where I was just totally burned out of the traditional classroom and took a whole semester where I didn't step foot. Um, I was working as a hospital chaplain. I was in a class on Philippians that met in Raleigh Central Prison. Uh, and I also took an independent study with an Eastern Orthodox priest, which was awesome. He had a huge beard and drove a Harley Davidson. And we read together and discussed together, and I wrote what he told me to write. And much of what we did was read from the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers were a monastic people, some of them monks and nuns, who from the 3rd century onward into the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th, they went out to live in the desert. They went to the desert, they would bask in God's peace away from ways of living that would distract them or take them away from their dependence on God. Anybody want to sign up for that? I think our, uh, no hands? Our equivalent probably wouldn't be desert, but maybe like Appalachian Mountain fathers and mothers. Uh, that's, I think, our closest escape place. But there's a, a whole genre of literature that uh, is really significant in some streams of Christianity uh, that come from the desert fathers. Some would live in communities that were mostly um, self-sufficient, working the earth, reading scripture together, praying together. Uh, and much of this took place uh, outside of uh, big cities in Egypt. One story from the Desert Fathers I particularly enjoyed was about a man named Arsenius who became a Desert Father. And he lived in the 5th century. He left a very normal life, like I imagine many of us here live, to go and become a Desert Father to go be a contemplative in the desert, read scripture, study, and just live out that contentment in Christ we see Paul talking about. And what I especially liked about him is he would travel into Alexandria periodically. This is Alexandria, Egypt, not Alexandria, Virginia. That would be a heck of a trip if he came here. But from time to time, Arsenius would leave the desert, would leave the contemplative life, go back to Alexandria, and wander through the bazaars. Do something I think a lot of us enjoy, just do some window shopping. Uh, see what's out there, go through the maze, enjoy yourselves. Now this doesn't make a lot of sense for someone who stepped away from the temptations of life to become a contemplative, right? Well, he wrote that going through these bazaars was a, a spiritual experience for him because seeing everything available in the shops, seeing the other people walking through the bazaars, made his heart rejoice because he was reminded that he didn't need 
any of that stuff because he had all of his joy, his contentment, and his satisfaction with God. Now, doing so sounds like a, probably a massive step for us to take to, to live a life like he did. And enjoying things in and of themselves is not inherently evil. But in light of what Paul has written here, we must ask where our contentment lies. You know, when we're not content, we often can't sleep at night. Or we think about something the first thing when we wake up or uh, struggle to enjoy a a TV show or sporting event that we're watching because something's nagging at us in the back of our heads. Where our contentment lies greatly affects how we see the world, how we see ourselves, and how God's call on us will be applied. With strength and satisfaction grounded in Jesus, Paul, here in Philippians 4, understands what it means to be content and to rest in the promise that God is always guarding your heart and your mind for his for your purposes with his peace. That's in the present, that's in the future, and that's in the ongoing future. And I think we have been blessed by Paul's words and Philippians here, and this is a beautiful place for us to conclude today. We have a very practical call. That's thinking about God's standing guard over our lives. We need to consider how present do we see God's peace in our lives? Is it something that we grasp at when we need it? Or are we reminded from Scripture this morning that, hey, that is truly always, always there? Actively envisioning God standing guard over our lives will help us lean into this holy contentment that we're talking about, that we see Paul realized, that Arsenius knew, that Christians throughout the ages have not perfected, but have done, uh, really achieved incredible things and lived lives that made God immensely proud because their contentment was in him alone. So let Paul's description of this contentment not be something that's out there and idealistic. We're not reading something from a couple thousand years ago and thinking, oh, that's a, that's a cool theory. Let this truly be a north star for us, something that we truly try to follow and live out. This life in which our joy and our satisfaction in God surpasses everything else. So let's live that out this week. And I'm going to invite Chris to come lead us in our final song. And I encourage you to make this your prayer and your commitment as we wrap up Philippians, as we approach another week, for some of us approach another month or season in our professional lives, Paul learned the secret. We can learn it too. We can know it too. We can grasp the same contentment and joy that Paul wrote about that he experienced. So let's rest in God's peace. Let's thank God for that reality as we stand together and Chris leads us in it as well.